0: Hello and welcome to Longevity Now, the place for all your news and views of life extension from around the world. In case you didn't know, Longevity has affiliate labs. These are research facilities around the world specifically devoted to understanding and or reversing the aging process and are generally aligned with the mission of Longevity. Small grants are distributed to these labs every year. One such lab is led by Yal Pedro de Megalesh at the University of Liverpool's Institute of Aging and Chronic Disease. Find out what he has discovered about the aging process in recent years. And now I would like to welcome to the Longevity Now podcast, associate professor at the Integrative Genomics of Aging group at the Institute of Aging and Chronic Disease, University of Liverpool in the UK, Yao Pedro de Magalich. Welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you. My, my pleasure to be here.
0: I wanted to start out just asking about your current research. What is the focus right now?
1: So we have um, various projects going on at the moment. So... I guess one of the topics I'm probably better known in the community is for my work on long-lived species, like naked mole rats and bowhead whales, and so we're still doing work in uh, along those lines. So we recently published, uh, as an example, a collaborative piece with Vera Gorbunova on cell senescence in, in naked mole rats, and we've been doing some work on naked mole rat cells as well. We also continue to do works so in. Uh, comparing genomes of different species to try to understand which genes and which changes in those, in, in those species confer longevity and disease protection.
0: In the case of the naked mole rat, what in particular in your recent research uh, has given you some clues as to why they live so long and cancer free, anything new?
1: Probably the strongest hypothesis is still that these animals respond differently to, to damage, in particular to DNA damage, than other rodents or than short-lived rodents. So it's been known for some time that naked mole rat cells, they, they grow slower than mouse cells, and that they um, when exposed to damage, they take longer to start dividing again. So they seem to take more care in repairing damage than, say, mouse cells. Um, and I think still think that that's one of the hypotheses would be that these animals cope with the damage, in particular DNA damage, better than short-lived rodents. Um, Having said that, we don't know yet why they live so long. I mean, there's other work from other lab, for example, from Vera Gorbanova's lab, suggesting that some of the anti-cancer mechanisms of these animals originate from from euleronic acid, uh, which is longer and and, and a bit different in naked mole rats, and that seems to... um, confer some protection against cancer in these animals but why they age slower and why they live so longer i would say although we have hypotheses uh, it's not well understood yet
0: okay is that similar then with the is that similar with the bowhead whales as well not fully understood yet or is there something specific with the bowhead whales that you've researched that stands out in comparison to say the naked mole rat
1: I think the hypothesis going into the bowhead whale is the same, that these animals cope with damage, in particular DNA damage, in ways that are superior to short-lived animals. So that that's still, I think that's still the strongest hypothesis. And indeed, from our genetic analysis of the bowhead whale genome, we found evidence of adaptive changes in, <coughs> excuse me, I'll start again. So from our analysis of the genome of the bowhead whale, indeed, we found evidence of adaptive changes in genes and proteins that are related to DNA damage responses and uh, and DNA repair and uh, cell cycle regulation, we suspect or we hypothesize are important in their longevity. I mean, having said that, of course, studying whales is quite complicated. And, you know, what we find in whales is mostly from a genetic uh, perspective that we then can infer using computational methods. But we don't have bowhead whale cells even that we can study. And so... a lot of our research on the bohea well is more based on just the analysis of the genome.
0: Okay, and that's the m- basis of most of your research is genomics research. And uh, back when we interviewed you a few years ago, you mentioned uh, that you thought that was one of the more fruitful areas of research for aging and rejuvenation. Uh, has Your opinion on that changed all that much. Do you still think that there is uh, quite a bit of translational applications that can come from pure genomics research?
1: My opinion is still that to understand a complex process like aging, we need to understand all or at least most of its components. And, of course, biology is complicated. The genome is complicated. We have thousands of genes. We have thousands of proteins. Um, interactions between different molecules in the bodies, um, interactions between different organs, and so on. Applying genomics or using genomics to understand uh, biology and and aging, to me is about understanding or addressing hands-on the complexity of the process and trying to understand which genes, which molecules are more important in aging, which could, um, trying to understand their interactions with each other, trying to understand their interactions with the environment, you know, and things like lifestyle. Um, and in order to do that, we do need these high-throughput approaches like genomics. And it's not just genomics, you know, we have proteomics, we have metabolomics, There's so there's other approaches as well, which in turn require lots of computational uh, approaches as well, so it's not just one tool, but certainly this high-throughput large-scale Methods I do think they're extremely Important for us to understand aging and for us to understand how not just how the process of aging works, but how we can manipulate it
0: As we have better tools and more tools Are we just discovering more complexity that makes it even more difficult of a task it seems to You know reverse aging
1: I don't think we we have more complexity for using more complicated tools. I think there is an intrinsic complexity to to biology. I mean, not just and of course, aging is a biological process and it's a complex biological process. Yeah, so.
0: that's right. And I just maybe need to re kind of clarify that question is. Uh, through the years uh, it seems I've read a lot of research and seen a lot of different work at different labs where something important was discovered that seems to be applicable to aging year after year after year we keep finding something but then appears as though as our knowledge base increases uh, we're not getting any closer to applications for humans and uh, because perhaps we're just discovering that it's more complex than
1: we had thought in the past. Um, I think there are reasons for why it takes so long to translate findings from um, basic biological research to in aging to uh, to humans. Certainly, the complexity of the aging process is one of those problems, and the fact that we still don't don't fully understand why we age. I mean, as we talked earlier, there are hypotheses, but we don't know for sure why human beings age. Um, so that's a problem as well. I think there is another crucial problem in the field of aging, which is the fact that aging takes a long time. Human aging obviously takes a long time, but even in animal models, if, you look for instance, uh, even at mice and rats, it will take years for you to do experiments and for you to do preclinical trials. So one of the big limitations we have in the field of aging and in studying aging and developing interventions for it is the time it takes to do experiments. And that is that's not something that can change easily. I mean it's not just a question of putting more money into it. You still need to do experiments. If you're going to do a clinical trial for aging, it will take you a long time. And that is a big limitation, I think, in understanding aging and in developing and testing interventions for, uh, for human benefit.
0: You mentioned that it's very difficult to develop translational applications uh, to human aging, but is there anything in your recent work that kind of stuck out where you said, aha, here is something that we can try very soon?
1: So we have been doing some work on pharmacological approaches to aging and more specifically in drug repositioning, that is trying to repurpose existing drugs uh, existing compounds that already have clinical indications or at the very least have already been studied in a clinical context and trying to see or trying to prioritize which of those could have applications in aging and age-related diseases so about uh, 2 years ago we we published this work where
0: that the machine learning for predictability <coughs> of life extending chemical
1: compounds No, that was last year. So we had a previous one on network pharmacology approaches to discover new caloric restriction memetics. And what we did was we we, we took the power of genomics. So we looked at which compounds uh, induce gene expression profiles, induce changes in gene expression that overlap with the changes in gene expression you see in caloric restriction. And then we found and prioritized a number of compounds Compounds. I mean, one of them was rapamycin, which, of course, is known to extend lifespan in various animal models. So that, you know, that was quite exciting, the fact that we were finding something um, that is known to extend lifespan. Uh, and then we tested several compounds, including rapamycin. And we show up the five compounds we tested. Four of them extended lifespan in animal models in a caloric-restricted, mediated way. So I thought, I mean, obviously, it's, it's still working in animals. This was done in worms. But the fact that we can employ these computational approaches to predict which compounds are going to be having life-extending effects means that we can use these approaches to prioritize and to save time doing those time-consuming experiments. Um, And more recently, as you alluded to, we've been also applying machine learning to uh, predict life-extending compounds, and we've been using other computational approaches. to to predict compounds which we then test in worms and now we have a couple of compounds that look quite promising and now we're trying to well we're trying basically to get funding to do experiments in rodents specifically in mice to test if these compounds uh, extend lifespan in mice as well uh, and whether they preserve health as well so that's something that we're doing at the moment now you know of course Even if that works in rodents, then it's the next step to to go into humans. Uh, But again, one of the advantages of doing this drug repositioning is that you're looking at compounds and looking at drugs that, in some cases, people are taking already. And so uh, we're also trying to look at cohorts of people and see whether... The people that are taking these compounds we think are going to have life-extending properties, uh, whether there's any evidence that they may be long-lived. For example, is their epigenetic clock uh, slow down? I mean, do they have a lower mortality? Um, that That's something we're trying to do as well. You mentioned
0: yes. trying to get funding for these additional research projects, and a few years ago I mentioned I asked you about what the attitude of uh, aging and rejuvenation was among your colleagues there at Liverpool and you mentioned that hardly anyone else was interested in actual human rejuvenation for whatever reason. Now, of course, the more people are interested in that, the easier it is to get funding. Would you say over the last five to six years that you see more interest in true actual rejuvenation or life extension among, uh, your professional colleagues at the university of Liverpool or elsewhere? I mean, I know they created the Institute of aging and chronic disease just recently. So is that a sign that, uh, yes, more funding and more interest is growing into uh, the fields like what you are in?
1: I don't think there's much more interest in terms of rejuvenation per se, uh, not just in Liverpool, but in, in most academic circles. I mean, there's there's obviously the Sense Foundation, which focuses on rejuvenation. But in terms of academia, I don't think the situation has changed much.
0: That is something that I've been perplexed by for quite a while, because most... University professors and researchers are naturally curious, and oftentimes they're willing to, you know, try out new things or expand their mind as far as what could possibly happen in the future or how their field of inquiry is going to change. But it seems rather persistent that not many in academia have thought much about the potential for future hu- human rejuvenation. That seems perplexing to me. Why Why do you think that is?
1: I think that's because they don't perceive human rejuvenation as happening anytime soon. I mean, I, I, I think that could be... I mean, it depends on what you mean by rejuvenation. I mean, if you mean rejuvenation of specific tissues, you know, there, there's some exciting work, for example, in thymus rejuvenation, in mice coming from the University of Edinburgh, for instance. So, if you're if you're talking about rejuvenation of specific tissues, that's something that uh, academics can be interested. If you're talking about you know rejuvenating a whole human being, that is you know reversing the process of aging, I think most academics, myself included, don't see that happening anytime soon. Because I mean, there's nothing close to doing that, even in animal models. So, you know, we can extend lifespan in mice but that's you know up to 50% and it's been up to up to 50% for several years now so it's it's not it's not really changing how much we can modulate aging and extend lifespan in mice that that's not that hasn't really changed in in recent years so rejuvenation is seen as something that will happen but it's very far into the future and so the focus most academics and i think a lot of people working on aging now also from a, a funding perspective is to focus on health and focus on disease prevention and to focus on interventions that will really increase the health span as opposed to the lifespan
0: now we've often talk about the current research that you are doing and what new leads there are, what new things are being discovered about aging and health. But what about uh, any dead ends that you've come across over the last few years where you were uh, kind of looking into some aspect of aging and then it ended up being, well, it's really not very applicable to rejuvenation or health extension. Is there anything like that where you came to a dead end?
1: I mean, I do think there's been projects we've tried that we didn't really work the way we expected. Um, I mean, one thing, a few years ago, we looked at RNA editing during aging. So we did some small experiments showing that RNA editing changed with aging. But then uh, we did that again with a, a larger and more controlled uh, larger sample size and in more controlled conditions, and we showed that that actually doesn't appear to change RNA, RNA editing in aging. I mean, maybe that, that, I mean, I know there's actually been a couple of other papers suggesting in some specific circumstances it can change in, in, in disease and in older individuals, but that that was something that, you know, I would give as an example that, that, that we tried um, and hasn't hasn't really worked out or it hasn't persuaded us to uh, pursue this line of research further because we couldn't see massive differences. So, so that would that would be an example of a, of a. I mean, I wouldn't call it the dead end because we did learn something.
0: Couldn't quite but... replicate the uh, pilot study,
1: basically. Well, the, the pilot study was done on human brains, and the work we did afterwards was done in uh, rats. Um, mm. and I mean, the problem of, of working with human material is that, you know, if, you know, you you can't really sacrifice humans when you want for taking pieces of their brain out. So, um, these were mostly. Uh, patients that died in hospital and, you know, in, in different conditions and from different causes. Um, well, for example, younger individuals we got samples from were individuals that had, uh, well, some had died in accidents, but quite a few of them had died of suicide. So you had different causes of deaths between young individuals and older individuals. And I think that affects the results what things
0: are on your to-do list here coming up in the near future? Uh, any kind of new line of research that you are eyeing up right now?
1: So we have relatively recent project we started I mean we started this about two years ago but we haven't really published much on it yet uh, focused on cell senescence and analyzing networks of genes associated with cell senescence to try to discover which are the key regulators of cell senescence and again trying to predict which molecules, which drugs can target those pathways to prevent uh, cell senescence or to eliminate senescent cells. So that that's something that we've been doing recently that is a relatively new line of research for our lab that I think could be quite exciting in better understanding cell senescence, its, its gene regulation, and also predicting new compounds.
0: Let's talk about the next 10 years. Are you fairly optimistic that within the next decade, some sort of compound will be found, some sort of therapy be found that will have a meaningful rejuvenation effect in humans?
1: No, I I don't think the evidence from animal models suggests that we will be able to rejuvenate humans anytime soon. I mean, we can't do it in mice yet. We cannot rejuvenate mice. So, if we can't do it even in simpler animal models, there's no reason to think that we can do it in human beings anytime soon. Now that doesn't mean it's impossible. I do think it's possible in theory, but again, the complexity of biology, complexity of human biology, I do think I don't think you know a single compound is line, is, is going to really uh, allow us to rejuvenate whole human being. Now you can try to think of more complex you know interventions you know things like gene therapy for instance, uh, but those again have their own problems in terms of safety. Yeah, so, so there are a lot of I think technical limitations yet before we can reach that stage of, of human rejuvenation.
0: Well, a lot of great information there, Yao. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Longevity Now podcast.
1: Well my pleasure and uh, look forward to talking to you again in the future.
0: Well, this particular interview left me a little depressed. Yao Pedro de Megalesh thinks that it will be at least a decade before we will see anything meaningful toward the reversal of aging. Doesn't it always seem like real progress is about a decade away? I thought we might be closer. I guess we have to keep pushing and keep working, keep funding, if we want to see more rejuvenation sooner. Until next time, I'm Justin Lowe.